Well, what, what is the gospel? What is the good news? The gospel, number one, the word gospel means good news. And the word news obviously means something that's already happened. So it's good news because God did something. It's already happened. The essence of the good news or the gospel is this. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now think about that, saints. The good news is that he died for the sins of the whole world. He was buried and raised again on the third day. Whosoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus actually, by his death, forgave the entire world. Think about this, saints. This is amazing. The good news is that when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said that no greater man has ever lived under the law except for John. Gave him the privilege to say that. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember when Peter had the vision of the, the sheets that came down and Peter as a Jew said, you know, I'm not going to eat this unclean food. You know, there was unclean food inside the sheet and he had a vision three times. The Lord spoke to him out of the vision and said, take and eat. And three times it was the message to Peter to take and eat this, this unclean food, unclean under the Jewish law. And finally, the voice said, which was the father speaking to Peter, and he said, what I have cleansed no longer consider unholy. And Peter got the message because he was right after that, he was called to go to the Gentiles, to a Gentile home, which he's not supposed to be as a Jew inside a Gentile home. He was called to go inside a Gentile home and tell them about Jesus. What God was saying to Peter is that he has cleansed the whole world. The, the Lamb of God has cleansed the whole world. Everybody on this earth is forgiven. They just need to accept it. Everybody, the entire world, past, present, and future, have been forgiven already. They just need to believe on Him. And how do you receive this forgiveness? By simple faith. If we believe on Him, we are forgiven. Jesus said, did, you not, did, did I not say, if you would but believe, see the glory of God? So the whole world, think about this, the whole world is already forgiven. They don't have to do penance. They don't have to do anything. It's good news. He's already done it. He took away the sin of the world. And whosoever believes on him receives this forgiveness. Because you have believed on him, you have received his forgiveness. Many will die having rejected the lamb. And you know what? That's the only unpardonable sin. There's only one unpardonable sin. Contrary to what you may have been taught by religion, there's only one unpardonable sin, and that is the rejection of the one who forgave all sins. That's it. It's that simple. One day, Jesus was doing miracles, and the Pharisees said, oh, these miracles are not from God, they're from the devil. And that, in the context of that, Jesus said, you have committed the unpardonable sin. You will not be forgiven in this life or in the next. What he was saying was the Holy Spirit was testifying to him, to who he was, by the miracles, that he is indeed the Son of God. He is the Messiah. 
And so the miracles testify to who he was. And the Pharisees hardened their heart and called the miracles from the devil and not from God. And if you harden your heart against the Spirit, you cannot believe on Jesus. But no, for no man can call him Lord except through the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that reveals to you who he is. And if you reject and, and resist the Spirit of God, as the Scripture says, today if you hear my voice, my voice, harden not your heart. If you reject that voice of the Spirit, you cannot believe. And therefore, the unpardonable sin is the rejection of the one, the only one, who can take away your sin. For there remains no other sacrifice for sin except for Christ, for his sacrifice. So if you worry that you committed the unpardonable sin because you got mad at somebody or whatever, just realize that's not it. It's If you're a believer, you cannot commit the unpardonable so chill out <laughs> so this gospel is amazing the good news is, is amazing would also be the greatest 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 commandment under this new covenant no not even close that's the greatest commandment under the law, which put burden on the burden on man to love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. So what is the greatest commandment under grace? Marshall said it. The greatest commandment under grace is to believe. To believe that He loves you with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength to believe that he gave himself for you. Hereby we perceive the love of God that he gave himself for me. The greatest commandment under the new covenant of grace is to believe in a love that's so awesome that He would give Himself for you. That's the greatest commandment. And this new covenant, that's how you enter the new covenant. Through faith. Through faith. The greatest commandment is faith. To believe in this love. To believe in this love. Now, what happens? We receive the Spirit. The Spirit sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God. And we find ourselves as a fruit Loving God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We find ourselves walking in what the law was trying to get us to do, but we don't do it through the law. We do it through the life of Christ. The life of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit. The Scripture says, If there be any commandment, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. If there be any commandment, love fulfills them all. So the great genius of God is to have us simply believe in a love that has come to us. As, as Marshall quoted the Scripture, it is not that we first loved Him. Old covenant, greatest commandment. It is not that we first loved Him. Old covenant, greatest commandment. But that He first loved us. For while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. You see it? You see it, saints? Next time someone asks you what's the greatest commandment, ask them, oh, which covenant? 
Which covenant are we talking about? Well, what do you mean which covenant? Well, you, I'll give you the answer, but you've got to tell me which covenant we're talking about. What, if they ask you what's the greatest commandment, well, you know, the Bible says there's the greatest commandment. Well, I know, but the law's greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God. But the grace's greatest commandment is to believe that God has loved me with all his heart. Isn't that awesome? That is another misconception we have in our minds. Okay, another thought that we need renewed in ourselves to allow the life of Christ to live through us is, I tell you, saints, it goes back to this issue of righteousness, resting in the righteousness of Jesus. I want you to think about this for a minute. Scripture says that he who has received this abundant grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. He who has received this abundant grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. Saints, think about this. Jesus came. God came to us as a man. He lived as a man on earth without sin this is not just some theory this is not just some principle he lived as a man without sin he lived on this earth a complete completely righteous life when when the scripture says god gives you the righteousness of Christ. What that means, saints, is that God sees you as if you have lived the perfect life, the perfect life on earth. No mistakes, not one. God gave you the righteousness of the Messiah who lived as a man on earth without a single sin. And that Messiah took your sins, my sins, all my sins upon himself. For he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Saints, this is why it's so important to rest in the righteousness of Jesus. All these thoughts you have condemning yourself, people condemning you, the world condemning you, it's from the devil. It's evil. It's darkness. The truth, the light that breaks through is this awesome truth of the gift of righteousness. That's why we can go boldly to a throne of grace to find help in time of need, find mercy and help, because you are coming with the righteousness of Christ. The Spirit of God is in you that cries out, Abba, the Son, Spirit, the Spirit of the Son cries out from you, Abba, Abba, Papa. You are a son of the living God. 
You were as righteous as Jesus is righteous. You walked the earth in union with the Father and the Son. Jesus said, My Father and I will come and make our abode within you by the gift of the Holy Spirit. You walk the earth where you put your foot is holy ground. You are the bush on fire with the fire of God and the bush is not consumed because you're trusting in Him to be your life. You see right now, you see, you sense in the Spirit, your eyes are being lifted up. You're saying, yes, yes, yes. Resting in the righteousness of Christ is so key to letting His life flow through us. Hebrews says, enter the rest of God. Come, through faith, enter the rest of God. Cease from your own works as God did cease from His on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is a big, is a big deal with God. You know why the Sabbath is a big deal with God? Not anymore as far as a day. We don't, we don't honor a day as the Sabbath because the Sabbath is a picture of Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. He's the actual, he's the real. The Sabbath was a picture, a photograph of the real. Jesus is the real. But that's why the Sabbath was a big deal with, with the Father, with God, because it was a picture of Christ coming in faith and how God would bring man and God together through faith. We cease from our own works trying to be righteous, trying to, trying to make God love us, trying to get God to, to look at us. We act like abused children with our head down, like our dad is going to beat us. It's horrible. Not us, hopefully, but a lot of believers have that mindset that, you know, groveling toward God and so afraid because of all their mistakes. No, the righteousness of Christ cuts through all of that. When we grab what God has given us in our minds and our, we are resting in this reality, we enter into this rest, we cease from our own works of trying to be righteous, and we see, oh my God. You see, you and I cannot grow in the awareness of our union with Him. And that's what you have, by the way. And you know this, but... I'm telling you, saints, a lot of saints don't get this. A lot of saints do not think very often about how Christ is in them. How often do we think that He's inside of me? How often do we try to do things on our own and try to be good Christians and we don't even think about Christ being inside of us? To live as Christ. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit, the Scripture says. Jesus Himself is in us. The words I'm speaking tonight are not my words. It's the words of Jesus within me. I couldn't do this. I mean, you saw how I messed up the announcements. <laughs> I mean, I, I, can't, I couldn't do this. This is the Spirit of God speaking. We are one with Him. The crowning achievement, the crowning achievement of Jesus was the taking away of the sin of the world and joining God to man. The crowning achievement of the Son of God. The death of Christ takes away the sin of the world and the resurrection of Christ brings us in union with Him, created new in Him. Thanks, babe.
so what's another thing that trips us up? This is a biggie. You ready for this? It has to do with righteousness. Most theologians teach that when it comes to righteousness, there are two kinds. Always be suspicious of theologians when they say there's two kinds. Two kinds. Most teaching out there right now is that there is two ways to look at your righteousness. There's your standing before God and your state on earth as you're living this life out. Standing and state. If you're, if you're a theologian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the teaching goes like this, that yes, your standing is righteous. Yeah, you're righteous. You're as righteous as Jesus. You're righteous, you know, with the righteousness of God. You've got, you know, you've got it all. But that's your standing. But your state is, you know, you're down here on earth. And when you blow it, you're not so righteous anymore. In fact, you need cleansing. You need cleansing. And the teaching goes something like this, that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now think about this. Yes, I, I'm going to go there. 1 John 1.9. Saints, 1 John 1.9 is one of the most mistaught scriptures in the entire Bible. The day is coming when more believers are going to see this and they're going to say, why did we not see this before? A famous philosopher said once, he said, you know, truth, truth comes and the first reaction to truth is laughter. Nah, it can't be that way. No, 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 that can't be true. The second phase truth goes through is violently opposing it. Then they violently oppose it. First they laughed about it. Now they violently oppose it because it's threatening to them. Whatever they're threatened by. The third phase that truth comes into is, oh, it's a self-evident truth that everybody now sees. Think about that. First, they laugh about it. Then they violently oppose it. And then when it becomes more and more people begin to see it, they go, oh, yeah, it's self-evident. We should have seen this. Why didn't we see this before? And saints, that's what's going to happen with 1 John 1.9. It's already happened. There are books that are out there right now that teach that 1 John 1.9 is misinterpreted and is causing almost a sickness in the body of Christ. It really is. It's causing a sickness, a spiritual sickness in the body of Christ because it makes you sin-focused. It makes you think you're not righteous when you sin because the verse says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It says it. That's the text. So which one is it? Are we righteous or are we not when we sin? 
I mean, saints, listen, this is, this is amazing how we miss this. Now, theologians will say there are two kinds, two kinds of forgiveness. There's the judicial forgiveness that when you believe on Christ, you're judicially forgiven and judged for all your sins. You're going to go to heaven. But on earth, when you sin as a believer, you need parental, parental forgiveness. And 1 John 1.9 is talking about parental forgiveness. Because, you know, you have your dad. Your dad gets, you get upset with your dad. You have something that's a problem. You have to make it up with your dad. You know, so you have to ask forgiveness. So you get back in good graces with your dad. So it's a parental kind of forgiveness. A lot of problems with that. A lot of problems with that. First of all, the text doesn't say that. I'm a lawyer. I deal with words. The text does not say that. And I tell you one word that they really don't like in that verse is the word unrighteousness. That really messes up this theory. Because you're either righteous or you're not. How many times do you get cleansed of unrighteousness? Once. Once. When you first believed. When you first believed. You were given the righteousness of God. Now you're telling me that this verse, 1 John 1, 9, that says, I need my sins forgiven and I need to be cleansed of unrighteousness when I sin, when the covenant itself says that I will be merciful to all their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more, when the covenant says you're not under law, therefore if you're not under law, sin is not even imputed to you, when the covenant says that you are in union with Him, and as He is, so are you on the earth, 1 John 4, 17, as, you, as He is, so are you on the earth, are you telling me that I can unravel the covenant of grace, the, the blood of the everlasting covenant, because I misstep and make an error and sin? Is not that the covenant? Is that not the covenant? That I've taken away your sin and they're not being counted against you anymore? Ever? Ever? You see, we've been hoodwinked. We've been hoodwinked by theologians with this 1 John 1, 9. Do you realize that if that were true, that we need to confess our sins to get back in fellowship with God? That's how the teaching goes, get back in fellowship with God through this parental forgiveness. Do you realize that that were true, that we have to confess our sins to get back right and get back in a fellowship with God? Do you realize that if that's true, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, didn't get the memo? <laughs> you search the scriptures. The Apostle Paul never once, not once, said to the saints that, hey, by the way, you Corinthians that are really messing up over here, don't forget to confess your sins and get back right with God and get back in fellowship with God. I mean, the Corinthians were a, a, were, were a, they were a wild bunch. You can read the letters and see they were a wild bunch. If there's any letter that needs to have that instruction in it, that should, that's the letter. And the Apostle Paul never once, never once instructs the saints to confess their sins so they can be forgiven again and get cleansed of unrighteousness so they can get back in fellowship with God. 
We have been hoodwinked. You think the Apostle Paul forgot it? You think he left out something very important like that? That's pretty important. I mean, think about that. We're talking about fellowship with God. We're talking about fellowship with God. That's how you bear fruit. That's how you, that's the whole purpose of the, of the covenant. He has called us into fellowship with the Father and the Son. I mean, that's it. You mean Paul left that out? You mean Paul forgot to tell us that we were not supposed to, we were supposed to confess our sins to get back in fellowship with God? You mean Paul left that out? He sure did leave it out. You know why he left it out? Because it's not true. It's not the truth. In a minute, we're going to see what 1 John 1 9 really says. And you're going to see it. How about Peter? How about Peter? Did Peter say it? Did Peter ever tell the believers to confess their sins to get back right with God? This is what Peter said. Peter said, if you see a saint who's not bearing fruit in their life, okay, most theologians, next comment would be, he's got unconfessed sin in his life. Not Peter. Not Peter. What did Peter say? What did the apostle Peter say? Saints, let's start listening to the apostles. I'm serious. We need to listen to the apostles. What did Peter say? He said, if you see a brother who's not bearing fruit, they have forgotten. They have forgotten that they were once purged from all their sin. They have forgotten the gospel. You see it? Peter says, you see a brother not bearing fruit, they've got a guilty conscience. They're probably under condemnation because they have forgotten that they were once purged from all their sins. No wonder the life is not flowing in that person. No wonder they're not bearing fruit. You see? You see the apostolic instruction there? And James, everybody runs to James. James even says, in one verse he says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for each other. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But he's not teaching. James did not teach confess your sins so that you can get back right with God and get sins cleansed and get unrighteousness removed. No apostle taught that. Not a single apostle. It is a good thing to share our faults with each other, our weaknesses with each other, and pray for each other. That is totally fine. But that is not the same as what is being taught in so many churches from 1 John 1.9. Saints, this one thing, if you will allow the Spirit to show you this one thing and stop thinking that every time you sin, you need to name your sins to God and get them cleansed. If you will let this one truth Come in. You know what a linchpin is? A linchpin? A linchpin? What's a linchpin, Will? It's everything that's it's all held on that one. Exactly. That's, exa- that's exactly right. It's like a, it's a piece of, on the machinery of some mechanical thing. If you pull that linchpin, the whole thing falls apart. Saints, this... 1 John 1.9 is the linchpin that will completely dismantle religious thinking. Completely. If the saints would just see this and pull the pin and believe the gospel and believe they're righteous because Jesus says you're righteous. 
Believe the gospel that your sin is not being counted against you. Pull the linchpin and watch what happens. Religion is in the business of managing sin. It's a multi-billion dollar business. Think about it, saints. This is true. It's a multi-billion dollar business, the management of sin. What if the truth were really proclaimed that sin has really been taken away? That's a novel thought. Behold the Lamb who took away the sin of the world. What happens to religion if, they, if, you, if you're not controlled by other men who say you have to confess, you have to get right with God, you have to... It's not just men, it's, just, it's organizations, it's an institution. It's, it's horrible. And more and more people are seeing the truth of, oh my God, what have we been doing? I read these articles all the time about... These theologians that talk about confession of sin, and you know they quote 1 John 1 9 like a hundred times in their article because that's all they got. They quote the same verse over and over and over and over again. That's all they got. Or they'll go to Psalm 51 in the Old Covenant and they'll quote David. There's plenty of verses in the Old Covenant that talk about, you know, confesses they confess their sin before God, they ask God to forgive them and so forth. Saints, we're in a new day. We're in a new day, big, big time. I mean, big time. And they'll quote Psalm 51 where David says, Oh, I, conf- I confess my sin to you, Lord, and blot out my transgressions and create in me a new heart. You know what David was doing? He's prophesying about what you have. He's prophesying about what's coming through Messiah. You, only you can blot out my transgressions, sacrifices of bulls and goats you do not want. Lord, create in me a new heart, a new spirit. He was prophesying and yearning for what you have in Christ. How dare a theologian put you back before Christ and put you under bondage and under condemnation using the very prophecy that was yearning to have what you have now. And that's what happens. If you don't know the Scriptures, it's so easy to just, yeah, that's that's in the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's Psalm 51. That's in the Bible, I guess. Paul says you need to rightly divide the word of truth, rightly divide the Scripture. There are two covenants in that book. And if you don't rightly divide it, you'll end up... That's why there's so much mixture of law and grace in the church today. Although it's getting much better. But it's, it's bad. People don't, don't really see the two covenants. Okay. Let's do that real quick. I, want to, I don't want to forget this first John 1 9 because this is so important. Okay, here we go. Ready? First John. Let's start with verse 7. Verse. First, let me say this. John is about 90 years old when he writes this letter. He's at the end of his life. 90 years old. That means for 90, that means for the entire life of the early church, nobody knew they had to confess their sins, right? I mean, he didn't write this letter until he's 90 years old. 
So that's a valuable piece of information. He was withholding all these years, right? No, because that's not what he was saying. But he's, here he is, 90 years old. Now listen, this John. John laid his head on Jesus' chest. John was there when he was crucified. John was boiled in oil and survived. John knows Jesus. John knows the truth. So when this 90-year-old man who has had Jesus living through him for decades writes this letter, John doesn't know anything but black and white. Black and white. You got to know that to understand how he words some of the things in his letter. Think about it. He's writing his letter and he's describing people that are in Christ and people that are not in Christ. He says in his letter that I wrote this for the, for the exact purpose because some people are seeking to deceive you. And I wrote this letter to clarify some things. That's what he said in his letter. So think about that. That's the man that's writing this. The one Jesus called, no, actually, John called himself the beloved. John called himself the beloved because he knew how much Jesus loved, Jesus loved him. So here's this older saint about to step over into the other realm, and he's writing this letter to help the saints not get deceived. Now, hear the words of John. i got to read Beyond 7. It's so good. Somebody had the Bible already opened up. Oh, good. good. Thanks. Thanks, Terry. This is so good. we got to go before 7. This is awesome. One of the big things he was addressing in this letter was a sect of unbelievers called the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that all matter was evil, that only the spiritual was, was good. The Gnostics believed that Jesus did not come in the flesh because, you know, God, God would not take on flesh. Flesh is evil. That's one of the things he addresses in his letter, that if you don't believe Jesus came in the flesh, you're Antichrist. That's one of the things he addressed, okay? So the Gnostics believed in that, but the Gnostics also believed that they didn't have sin. The Gnostics believed they didn't need a savior, they just needed a higher knowledge. The word Gnostic comes from the word in the Greek knowledge, Gnostic. The, the Gnostics taught that if you had this higher angelic knowledge, you can be one with God and you don't, you don't need a savior, you don't have sin. It's a, matter, it's a matter of knowledge, a higher knowledge. The Gnostics. And they were infiltrating the church. And so here's John in his old age writing. Notice how he starts the letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which, you have, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. In other words, John is saying he came in the flesh. We touched him. We saw him. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. 
That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we, we, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you. That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. The Gnostics lived a very sinful life because they believed that it doesn't matter what you do in your body. It's all about the spirit. And so they believed it didn't matter how you lived in your body. And so John is addressing that and he says, there is no darkness in this God. And verse 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, as the Gnostics said, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John here is not talking about a believer who is getting off into sin. This is the old man talking, seeing black and white. He's talking about an unbeliever here. He's saying that if you say you have fellowship with him, Gnostic, and yet you're walking in darkness, you lie. And you do not practice the truth. Next verse. But if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, that's the believer, we have fellowship with one another, the Father, the Son, and each, each one of us in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Right there, saints, walking in the light doesn't mean walking without sin. Walking in the light doesn't mean walking perfectly so you can have fellowship with God. Because it just says in the same verse, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin while we're in the light. Notice what he says here. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Light is not talking about obedience to commandments or doing anything. Because if that were true, it says Jesus was in the light. You mean Jesus was being obedient? You mean Jesus was doing everything right? Well, he did, but that's not what he's talking about there. It's a realm. John is talking about a realm. He is in the light. He's in that realm. It's synonymous with spirit. He's in the spirit. He's in the realm. If we walk in the spirit, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, where he is, we have fellowship with him. That's what he's saying there. Let's go on. Now, that's the first mention of sin in this passage. First mention of sin. So the next thing he says, because the Gnostics will, then, will say, wait, 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 we don't have any sin. So then he immediately attacks the Gnostic view and says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's talking to the Gnostic. They said they had no sin. So he's telling the Gnostic, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, now, the word confess, there are saints, actually means to agree with God. That's all it means, to agree with God. The reason why he uses the word confess there is because the Gnostics were saying they had no sin. So what he's saying there to counter that was, he was saying, if you agree with God that you do have sin, if we confess our sins or agree with God that we have sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a salvation verse. 
That's a verse to a, a Gnostic or to an unbeliever that says they have no sin. And John is saying, if you will agree with God that you're a sinner, that you need forgiveness, that you need a Savior, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How many times has God cleansed us from all unrighteousness? Just once. You see it? You see how 1 John 1, 9 has been used, has been misinterpreted as the bar of soap for the Christian to stay clean before God? It's horrible. Next verse. If we say, here, now he goes back to the Gnostic. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Now think about this, saints. He just, John just described somebody and he said four things about this person. He said, you're deceived. He said, the word is not in you. He said, you're calling God a liar. And he said, the truth is not in you. Saints, that is not a description of the saints of God. John would never and did never in his letter never said that the believer was deceived, had not the word in him, had not the truth in him, and was calling God a liar. But you do see that same phrase in chapter 5 of John where John says, He who does not believe in the Son of God has, made, has called God a liar. Same phrase. So here's, here's John in the first chapter saying that you're calling God a liar if you're not agreeing with God that you need a Savior and that you have sin and you need a Savior. In the same way, in the same letter, chapter 5, he says, and if you don't believe that Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God, you're making God out to be a liar because God says He is His Son. You see what I'm saying? Saints, this is, this is huge. Why has it taken us so long to see this? This is huge. You take 1 John 1 on out of the religious arsenal to keep you in sin, keep you in a sin consciousness, and there's nothing left. Nothing left. What about the Lord's Prayer? What about it? Jesus is saying before his, before his finished work, before his death and resurrection, he gives the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray this way. Pray that your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because the kingdom had not come yet. The kingdom came with the Spirit. As Jesus said, the kingdom is coming, not like, not like men think. It shall be within you. Rick talks about this all the time. Heaven has come. Heaven within us. The kingdom of heaven is within us. The Spirit of God within us is the kingdom within us. Jesus said, men don't get this, but it's coming within you. So the prayer, the Lord's prayer talks about the kingdom coming. And of course he's going to say in the prayer, forgive us our sins, because that's the main reason he came. So before his work on the cross, he's telling them to pray that God would forgive your sins. We make way too much of that. The Lord's prayer is never seen used again by the apostles ever again. Never used again. It's not a model prayer to be used forever. The kingdom has come. Forgiveness has come. It's pretty awesome. I mean, these apostles were commissioned by Jesus to explain his gospel. And the apostle Paul doesn't once, doesn't once mention that we're supposed to confess our sins and name our sins in order to be forgiven. As a believer, 
as a believer. I'll tell you something else. Do you realize that even to become a believer, there's not a single verse that says confess your sins except the first John 1, 9? And the reason why that one is there is because it's addressing the Gnostics thought that they had no sin. So that verse is there to say, if you would agree with God that you are a sinner, then you can receive forgiveness of sin. But you know, there's not a single verse that even says you're supposed to confess your sins to, be for, to enter into the covenant. Not a single verse. Search it out. The word is to believe, to believe, to believe. If you're not required to confess your sins to enter the covenant, because the first John 1 9 is just talking to a Gnostic who says, I have no sin. So that's a good time to say, well, if you'll agree with God that you're a sinner, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you look at every single verse, every single thing in that book of Acts, everything in the apostles' writings, there's not a single verse that says you've got to confess your sins in order to be forgiven. The one response God is looking for you is to believe. And it does say repent in some places and believe, but repent just means to change your mind. Change your mind. You are a sinner and you need a, you need a Savior. That's what it means. Change your mind. Change your mind and believe. Change your mind. Repent. Change your mind and believe. Change your mind that you are not righteous in yourself, that you need a Savior, that you need forgiveness. Change your mind and believe. You see it? Even the gospel that goes forth is simply a gospel of believe. Do you realize the word repentance never appears one time in the book of John? Not once. The gospel of John does not have the word repentance in it. Why? Because John says believe, 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 believe a thousand times. Because inherent in belief is a change of mind. Inherent in your faith in Christ is a change of mind that you made because you realized I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, I am undone, and I need forgiveness. So the Apostle John leaves out of repentance, the word repentance, and just says, believe. Do you realize this is so simple? This is so simple. God has done it. Jesus has forgiven everybody, and all that God wants you to do is believe. Did I not say... Jesus said, did I not say, if you would only believe, you would receive, or you would see, the glory of God. It's so awesome. Simple but profound to believe that He has taken away our sin and given us His righteousness. Not some positional righteousness. That's what the theologians teach. You've got your standing, but you've got your state. You've got this positional righteousness that, that means you're going to go to heaven when you die. But saints, by cutting up righteousness like that, we are making void the word of God. Jesus came hard against the Pharisees for making void the word of God by their tradition. If you believe you need to get cleansed, cleansed from sin and unrighteousness, that's in the verse. You can't do, you can't get, do away with that. That's in the verse. You can't, you can't just omit that. And they do in their writings. They don't even talk about it. They don't want to talk about that because that, that, that's a problem. That's a problem with their theory. But if you believe you need to get forgiveness, cleansing from sin and unrighteousness when you commit a sin, you are basically living under the law in the way you think. You're basically think, living like someone under, under law. 
That's why the life is quenched. That's why the life is quenched in us. And He can't flow powerfully through us because we still see ourselves in sin. I hear teaching all the time that talks about how our sins have been... Thanks. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. let me see. The next... Can you, can you get chapter 2 real quick? <laughs> that was the last verse in chapter 1. I just want to see... I want you to hear the first few verses in chapter 2 where the continual thought of John. All right, here now here's John. He just told... John just told this group of people... The Gnostics, that they were deceived, they had not the word in them, they had not the truth in them, and they were calling God a liar. Okay, that's not a believer. That's, that's the unbeliever, that's the Gnostics that he's coming against. And he gives, them, he gives them a way out. He says, look, if you'll agree with God that you're a sinner, then God is faithful and just because he paid for it on the cross. He's just. And he'll forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. See? He continues, chapter 2, first verse. My little children, now he's talking to the saints again. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, okay, here we go. What do we do? This is obviously, this is children. This is Christian. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, which means complete satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. For the whole world. For the whole world. So how do you respond? Thanks, Terry. So how do you respond as a believer when we sin? John says, remember, saint, we have an advocate with the Father who has gone and taken our place. And he is the propitiation. The word propitiation in the Greek actually means that it's not only a complete sacrifice that satisfies the Father, but it means it removes all anger. Yeah. Yeah. He advocates and he also, in his work, has totally removed our sin. And he is the righteous one, the scripture says. John says right there. So, so, so what do we do when we sin as believers now? I'll tell you what I've been doing for the last 30 years. And it's awesome because it's, it's the way you're to live in this new covenant. You, you can go to God and say, Lord, I thank you. Thank you that you're not holding this sin against me. I thank you that, yeah, I blew it, but... You know, like when I really blow it, I... I Picture me like sitting on the side of, on the sidewalk after being blowing it somehow, and Jesus sitting there, you know, chewing on a piece of grass, and I'm going like, I really blew it, didn't I? He goes, Yeah. So thankful that you took my sin and you're not holding that against me. He goes, That's true. And then I say. What did I do wrong? How did that happen? Try to do it on your own. You didn't depend on me. Oh, you're right. I was trying to do that myself. And you also bought the lie of the devil and fell into one of his traps. I sure did. 
No worries. Let's go. Learn to live by me. Don't be afraid. Peter said to Jesus, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, Peter. Come to me. I'm not trivializing sin. Not any more than Jesus did when he caught the woman in the very act of adultery. In the very act of adultery, the Pharisees wanted to stone her to death. Jesus' response was to them. You who have no sin cast the first stone. And one by one they left. Okay, now he's going to give her the what for. Then he looks at her. And you know what I believe, saints? He never looked at her until they left. He always, he was looking at the ground, drawing. He never met her eyes until the accusers left. He did not want to look into her eyes in the context of that mob. When they left, then he looked at her and said, where are your accusers, woman? And she looked around and said, they're gone. And he said, neither do I, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wow. His life doesn't lead us into a life of sin. His life leads us into his life. And we end up walking like he would walk. But we don't do it because we're trying to apply the law, our principles to do it. We do it because we're resting in another's life within us. I'll wrap it up. Jesus said that as I live by the Father, so shall you live by me. So if we're resting in the righteousness of Christ and we see that as he is, so am I in the world now because of this new creation, a new heart. There's so much I'd like to say tonight, but there's just not enough time if we really see we have a new heart and that sin has been relegated to the mortal body, Colossians 2.11 says that the hand of God circumcised you in a spiritual circumcision and cut away the body of the flesh and, and enabling the inner man to be translated from the kingdom of this darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son through the door which is Christ. You now sit with him in heavenly places as you walk in these bodies, but you've been severed from the flesh and no longer in the flesh. The old man died and is not dying daily. Another problem in our thinking. The old man died at the crucifixion of Christ, and now the new man lives within you in union with Christ. And we behold him, not our sin. We behold him and are trans, 
translated, transformed into the same image from glory to glory as we behold him, for we have been created new in his image. Paul says, when now when you look at the glorified Christ, you're looking as if in a mirror because you're seeing yourself. This is powerful. This is not religion. This is the apostolic teaching that's in everybody's Bibles. This is, this is in everybody's Bibles. You can go home tonight and read what I'm saying. This is so cool. It's written down for all of us to read. That you are actually a new creation. Behold, any man be in Christ. It's a new creation. And now how, how does that new man get out? We rest in this righteousness. We don't buy. We don't buy this theology that says, no, I'm out of fellowship when I sin and back in fellowship when I ask God to forgive me and I'm out of fellowship when I sin. Saints, it's not even doable. It's not even doable. Think about it. Think about it. Sin is what you think. Sin is anything you think, speak, or do that is contrary to the perfection of God. It misses the mark. Anything that misses the mark of the perfection of God in your thoughts, words, or deeds, or in what you fail to do in omission, which you should have done, is a sin. Good luck with that. I mean, if you're going to play by those rules, if you're going to play by those rules, you have to confess every sin to stay in fellowship with God. Just give up. Or, or, play the game. You can play the game. Stop playing the game. See the truth. You don't have to do that anyway. They didn't even have to do that under the old covenant. This covenant is supposed to be better. The old, old covenant had one sacrifice through the day of atonement, cleaned everybody up. Even sins of omission. It's written in the scripture. I mean, it's almost like, let's go back to the old covenant. But see, that's how wrong we're off. That's how off we are with the new covenant, thinking that the old covenant was better. It's ridiculous. And somebody needs to step up and speak it and be bold. But people love the praise of men more than the praise of God. There's, there's pastors and preachers right now out there that, that should be speaking this. Maybe they see it. I don't know. <clears throat> I heard someone say just the other day, I heard a preacher the other day teaching on the armor of God. He's taught, he was teaching on the armor of God. And he, got, he went from the belt, belt of truth. He did good, awesome, awesome. I was like, helmet of salvation? Yeah, yeah, it was good. He was good. And then he got to the breastplate of righteousness. I went like, okay, okay, this, this will be litmus test here. I hope he, hope, he, hope, he, hope, he, hope he does it. Got a bunch of young people in this church. They need to hear this. They need to hear about the gift of righteousness. This is the armor of God, by the way. Not our armor. It's the armor of God, right? And what did he say? He said, the breastplate of righteousness is right thinking and right thinking. Direct quote, right thinking, right living is the breastplate of righteousness. No, it is not. No, my breastplate is God's God's breastplate. That whole armor thing is all about God. It's not about us. When you tell the saints that the breastplate of righteousness in the armor is right thinking and right living, you basically put the believer back under the law because that is 
the law. Through the law is the knowledge of good and evil, of sin. And carrying it out and performing it is the law. So by telling the saints that the breastplate of righteousness is right thinking and right living is bringing them down a path of death. And this is a great pastor. I love this pastor. He's got a lot right. But this... The breastplate of righteousness is the righteousness of God. That's what you have. You have God's righteousness as a gift. That's the breastplate. And all those young people in that church should have heard that that morning, and they didn't. They should have heard it. That it's not up to you to think right and do right, to be shielded. It's a gift, the gift of righteousness and the shield of faith in all of this that God has done that will quench every dart of the enemy. That whole armor is about God. It's not about us. So Jesus said, I live by the Father. And as I live by the Father, you shall live by me. And I'll close here, I promise. Jesus said, as he lived by the Father, we shall live by him. He said, he is the vine and we are the branches. He said, apart from him, we can do nothing. Same thing Jesus said about the Father and him. He said, apart from the Father, I can do nothing. He lived in complete dependence on the life of the Father within him. He said, the works that I do are not my works, the works of my Father They're the works of my Father. The words I speak are not my words. They're the words of my Father. He said, in the same way, you will live by me, and the words that you speak will not be your words, but my words. The works you do will not be your works, but my works. Now, how how do we live by him? He told us. He told us. He said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have this life in you. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will live by me. That's when many walked away from him and didn't follow him anymore because they couldn't hear what he was saying. What he was saying is that my death, my death on the tree, my broken body, my spilled blood removes your sin completely. And gives you my own righteousness. For he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if we are righteous in him, and we abide in that reality, that we we are living in the gift of his righteousness, the life will flow. The life will flow. That's why he said, take the covenant meal as often as you do it in remembrance of him. Because it's a remembrance of him, not of sin. That's another thing. Here's what, what number are we on like? Number eight is another thing that we need to change in our thinking. We hear all the time, and sadly, you'll hear on Easter Sunday, people take the Lord's Supper 
And you'll hear this, that, okay, we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves for our sin. In fact, the exact quote from this same pastor, by the way. I really like him, but this, I wish you, wish you could see this. But this same pastor said, let us, let us remember our sins, let us examine ourselves for sin, and let us get clean before the Lord before we take of the elements. I'm like, they're unbelievers in the midst of you because they came for the agape love feast. They came for the food. And they're partaking in the Lord's Supper, the covenant meal. They're, he says, this is happening because you're not discerning the Lord's body. That's what he said. You're not discerning the Lord's body. But if you are a member of the body, if you are a believer, let him take of the cup and eat of the bread because it's for you. You cannot drink the covenant meal unworthily as a believer. You cannot drink judgment to yourself. That's what he said. You can't take those words out. That's in the passage. He says they're drinking judgment to themselves. And they're drinking unworthily. A believer cannot, cannot drink judgment to himself by taking the very elements that remind him that his sins have been taken away by the Lamb of God. It's a travesty. It's a travesty that saints all over the world are, hear, are hearing at the covenant meal to examine yourself for sin, get clean before you eat of this covenant meal, when the very meal itself is a remembrance of Him and not of our sin. For under the old covenant, there was a remembrance of sin year by year by year. Not so under this new covenant. For the sacrifices having the worshipers having once been purged should have no more consciousness of sin. Hebrews 10. And he said, do this in remembrance of me, not of sin. It's the most powerful thing the church could do, and we've ruined it. It could be a covenant, covenant time of worship that's unsurpassed. It's so powerful that when the unbeliever would partake of it, they get sick and die. That's how powerful it is, because the believers taking it would get healed and live. It's powerful. His presence in the covenant meal is powerful. He said, do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. It's powerful. And I tell any unbeliever, don't take this lightly. If you're not a believer, don't take the cup. Don't drink the bread. Don't eat the bread because you're not a believer. You're not in the covenant. But if you want to be in the covenant, let this be your act of faith now. Say, I believe. That's all you have to do. Believe in your heart. And a man is made righteous because he believes in his heart. Confession of his man, I believe, unto salvation. No naming of sins. Just believe. Let this act of faith take the bread, take the grape juice, and say, I believe. Watch what he will do. You see what I'm saying? The saints should never be told to examine themselves for sin at the covenant meal. Jesus said, remember me, not our sin. That covenant meal should be a time of excitement. Listen, saints, Passover means judgment passed them over. Judgment passed them over when they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. It was July 4th. A nation was born in a day. July 4th, a nation was born in a day. We're out of here. We're out of Egypt. 
It was the blood on the doorpost was the final blow on Egypt when the firstborn died. And Pharaoh said, let them go. And they opened the doors and they came hundreds and millions out with Moses out of there. It was a July 4th celebration. A nation born in a day because judgment passed them over and they passed over the sea into another reality, into the land full of milk and honey. That is what you and I have now. All of that a picture of what you have now. So that celebration should be a, a celebration of we live now in the promised land full of milk and honey, which is Christ. And we celebrate Him and remember Him with the bread and the wine, knowing that our sins have been taken away. It's awesome. It should be an incredible, joyous time of remembering Him and encouraging each other. These are the things Paul talks about in Romans 8. The things of the Spirit. These are the things of the Spirit that are heavenly truths and heavenly realities that we must see, that our mind must be renewed to, that He who lives in us might walk through us to behold Him as your life is awesome. It's the simplest thing, but it's the most profound thing. God put everything in Christ, all the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. Every command of God, every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus. When we live by Him, He lives His own life through us. And no flesh can glory in His presence because it's Him. It's Him doing it. It's Him bearing the fruit. It's Him walking through us. We no longer live by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Real quick, God told Adam, don't eat of that tree because it'll lead to death. The knowledge of good and evil. The law is a picture of that tree. The law is a picture of that tree. The knowledge of good and evil. Adam had the revelation. Eve did not. Eve wasn't created until after God said that. So Eve only knew it from the words of Adam. Adam told Eve. Eve didn't hear God. Adam heard God. You've got to hear it from God or you'll be seduced. Eve didn't hear it from God. She heard it from Adam. She saw the tree as good for fruit, beautiful to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise. She replaced the revelation of God. Because there's no way Eve could know that tree was a tree of death except by revelation. The tree looked beautiful. The tree was good for food. The tree would make you wise. 
No way you would know the tree would lead to death except by revelation of God. Adam had it. Eve only heard it secondhand from Adam. So she allowed her reason and logic to supplant the word from Adam and she took of the tree and ate it. In the same way today, saints look at the law using their own reason and logic and they think the law is good. Why can't we live by the law as as Christians? Why isn't the law good? They replace the revelation of the apostles with their own reason and logic. And they take of the tree of law and try to live the Christian life, not knowing the apostolic revelation. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 for the strength of sin is the law. Romans 6.14 For sin shall not be master over you, for you are, you are not under law, but under grace. 2 Corinthians 3.7-9 through 9, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, the Ten Commandments engraved on stones, if he called them the ministry of death, came with glory, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For the ministry of condemnation, the law has glory. Much more does the ministry of righteousness in grace abound in glory. For through the law I die to the law, so that I might live to God. Galatians 2, 19. The revelation from God is that we're free from the law. So all of these things that the Spirit is showing us opens it up that the life of Christ might flow through us and live through us. In closing here, I just want to say that it's very much like when they were in the storm and the boat was about to sink and they were trying to save the boat and Jesus came walking on the water out to them and Peter said, Lord, if that's you, bid me come. And Jesus said, come. Peter left the sinking boat and walked on water to Jesus. No man can walk on water. It's the perfect picture of the Christian life. Let go of the boat. A sinking boat, by the way. With all your traditions. And hear the revelation of God. Hear the voice of the Son of God call you to Him on the water. Walk out from your old way of thinking and see what He will do. Instead of being trapped in a sinking, stinking boat, you'll have the whole lake to walk on with Him. That's freedom. That's God. For he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I know we've gone long. Michelle, if you want to come on up, we just wrap this up real quick here. I just, Lord, we just thank you that you're, 
You're helping us see these things. I pray that every person here will ponder these things. I pray that every person here will search these things out in the scriptures to see if they be so. If one man can talk you into something, another man can talk you out of it, I pray that they will know by the Spirit and by the Scriptures that these things are true. You need no man teach you, but the anointing which abides within you shall lead you into all truth. So now, Lord, I pray you would bless this, this time where we take of the bread and drink of the juice together. It was your body that was broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins and your blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. I pray that in the taking of the bread and drinking of the juice in this covenant meal, where we remember you and not our sins, for you have taken them away. I pray that you would touch each one here. Grant the desire of their heart. Answer their prayer, whatever it may be. Help them see you in a whole new way. Amen. Go ahead, saints, and just pour the, pour the juice among yourselves and take the bread and the juice together as a covenant meal. Love you guys. Marshall's going to sing my favorite song, one of my favorite songs. And he's going to bless us and send us out. Thanks for coming tonight.